0: The scan deep dive are in depth conversations with researchers, opinion leaders, community members, and practitioners. These will cover the topical, problematic, challenging, and progressive global health stories of our world. Tune in to join us on these explorations.
1: World Drowning Prevention Day on July 25th, we present a deep-dive episode from the George Institute in which Dr. Jagnur Jagnoor discusses the table of influence in drowning prevention with global experts. Globally, an estimated 236,000 lives are lost to drowning every year, almost 650 every day, 26 every hour. Drowning is an issue that affects every nation of the world and its scale and impact has been recognized at the global level with the adoption of the historic resolution to address it in 2021. In this conversation, our guests will draw on their experiences of drowning prevention in India, Africa and the UK to consider how best to strengthen regional actions such as it is inclusive, responsive to the lived experience and is context-specific. We can all act together to end drowning.
0: Today is about acting inclusively to prevent drowning, and our three speakers are Dr. Thanu, Professor Olive, and Danielle Ope, and we're really looking forward to the conversation. So a quick introduction. Dr. Thanu is a Deputy Director General Health Services, Ministry of Health and Family Welfare India. She's a public health specialist trained in medicine with a specialization in community medicine. She joined Central Health Services, Government of India back in 2007, and has had phenomenal contributions at national level shaping national trauma care and burns care program with the ministry. Presently, she's coordinating the efforts being made by the government of India to establish emergency trauma and burns care protocols and guidelines. Uh, you would almost think that she has multiple <laughs> clothes, uh, as she also leads a National Center for Vector borne Disease Control and Monitors, 19 regional offices of health and family welfare spread across the country. So welcome, Dr. Tanum. It's great to have you here. Our next speaker is Professor Olive Kobasinghe, and she's an accident and emergency surgeon. Uh, she's an injury epidemiologist and a published author. She is director of the Trauma, Injuries and Disability Program at the Macarare University School of Public Health in Kampala, both chair of the Road Traffic Injuries Research Network and co-founder of the Great Outdoors Uganda. And we at the George are very fortunate to have her as a distinguished fellow with the organization. Uh, Lastly, we have Danielle Obey. Uh, She's an accomplished business change and integration management consultant. Uh, She's one of the four co-founders and the chair of the Black Swimming Association, a nonprofit organization, and first of its kind set up to highlight the value of swimming as an essential life-saving skills for all communities. The organization works to promote the education of ethnically diverse communities of African, Caribbean, and Asian heritage on water safety, drowning prevention, and the benefits of aquatics. Great to have you all. One of the reasons that we are here is that 25th of July, 2022, is, we will be commemorating the second World Drowning Prevention Day, which was so declared by the United Nations Resolution uh, in 2021. What does the resolution really mean at the country level? Uh, thank you, Dr.
2: Jagnoor. Uh, that's a very, very important uh, question here. In India, we feel that uh, UN resolution on drowning prevention, it will mean a lot to us because this issue will uh, facilitate uh, the momentum in the program regarding drowning prevention, which has really not uh, taken a lot of uh, policy uh, attention so far. So we have seen that it has happened in the regions with WHO situation assessments also. And it helps set aspirational goals and will help in setting a roadmap for the country. And it will actually be very important for us to have this kind of declaration uh, to help us build better
0: preventive strategies in drowning. We were talking about the UN resolution. And I wonder, as a grassroots, as a community organization, as the bridge, what does this UN resolution mean For you, Um, how do you think this resolution facilitates some of the activities that your organization is taking, both at grassroots level as well as the boardroom level, Daniel?
3: equal access to you know essential water safety water awareness you know, water safety education drowning prevention but what we are dealing with is more about equity equitable access where is the community where are our beneficiaries the work that we do we obviously we sit within policy but we also work very closely into communities because there hasn't been that bridge now for Forever, if you turn around and you ask someone in the street and you see, ask them, you know, when is World Drowning Prevention Day, I, I dare say they wouldn't know when that is. Is there that visibility? Is there that awareness for our target audience or our, our core beneficiaries? And that's where the disconnect is happening. We have policies that are being passed on. At at UN level, at WHO level, we have these statistics, but it doesn't really mean much to the communities that we're trying to reach because there is a lack of visibility. There's a lack of education. There's a lack of awareness. And the work that we do is to ensure that we take the policies, we work with the sector to translate messages and education that already exists and ensure that it reaches the communities it needs to reach with impact.
0: I heard you saying owning solutions and as, as, as I was having a side discussion with one of my colleagues the other day, it was about owning the problem and only then can you own the solution. The community is not a passive receiver of the activities conducted by the policymakers or academicians or other stakeholders in the field. What role can multilaterals such as WHO and UNICEF uh, and others play in really saving lives on the ground?
2: So the thing is that uh, uh, most of the time what happens in countries are that there are a lot of competing priorities. So whatever policy the government makes will impact millions of lives and uh, the causes for drowning being, uh, you know, multisectoral. There is actually very important uh, activity or actions which are taken at the global level like WHO and all, which impact the actions to be taken at the level of the country. So there is a well-established appreciation of different environmental and social determinants of drowning also. We have a good understanding of sectors involved in drowning prevention, but if the call comes from WHO and the WHO documents have been extremely useful, as have been the other uh, documents that are useful in forming our own policies, which are suited to our healthcare systems in the country. So these all activities help, definitely help us a lot to sustain the effort, energy, and gives us more enthusiasm to the program managers at the ground level.
0: Thank you. So, you just mentioned WHO. If there was one ask from the stakeholders, what would that be? If we were trying to make it a more inclusive effort? India
2: was part of the regional report on drowning prevention. And while we were working for the report, we realized it is so much multisectoral and so much cross-cutting right from the national to sub-national to local levels, India being a diverse country. We really need one uh, uh, national framework for drowning prevention and then we need to go down to the states and local levels to understand what are their issues and challenges. There may be issues in the data collection or data reporting or management of drowning cases or issues with the legislations. And we are working continuously for the last many years to develop such kind of documents to support the states that all have a different uh, geography, different topography and different kind of prevalence and incidence of drowning in the country. So uh, one document definitely will not suffice. So what we will need uh, to do at the country level is to have some kind of a standard documentation along with the state-specific and local-specific issues to be addressed in the country.
0: Daniel, it's been great going through the website from Black um, Swim Association, and I really enjoyed some of the stories over there. I would be curious, and I'm sure most of our listeners wouldn't have heard about the association, so I think it's a great opportunity to understand the issue more deeply. What inspired um, the, the development of association? The
3: Black Swim Association was set up just over two years ago to initially ensure that we work towards the future of ethnic diversity in aquatics. Um, The the thinking really was to tackle the the underrepresentation that we see in aquatic sports, whether it's swimming or canoeing or kayaking and rowing. And and that is is why we, we started the BSA. But very quickly, a year, 18 months into the founding of the BSA, what we found out that was that the issue we were dealing with. We came in thinking about, you know, diversifying a sport, which actually is essentially the only sport that is also a life saving skill. Um, what we had to do was to spend time um, from a, a journey of discovery perspective, understanding where the sector was. So we have figures in the UK like ninety five percent of black adults do not swim. You know, ninety three percent of Asian. Uh, if Asian adults do not swim, 80% of black children leave primary school where swimming is a mandatory part of the curriculum, unable to swim, and that was also 78% of Asian children in, in in England. And so when we looked at the figures, it was very quick to, to suggest that it was the focus was about swimming or lack of swimming. But here in the UK, swimming is regarded as a, a, obviously a vital life skill from a water safety and drowning prevention perspective. But if you already have a community that is so high not swimming, we then had to go behind those figures. And we very quickly found when we started working, I mean, we started with advocacy advocacy advocacy, research, education, and support, not just to the communities that we represent, but also to the sector um, that that is struggling there, I say, to reach these communities. So the BSA was set up really as a bridge, a bridge between disenfranchised communities and a sector. When I talk about the sector, it's not just the aquatic sector in terms of sport. It also is the the drowning um, prevention agencies, so you know the Coast Guards, the Rural Life Saving Society UK, the Canal and Rivers Trust, um, the Rural Lifeboat Institute, they have been working for years getting across water safety messages to communities, even the National Water Safety Forum. So we found ourselves now consulting with government, consulting with policymakers who have up till date, not gotten vital water safety education to communities that are considered at high risk, Black and Asian communities in the UK, who also live, you know, within one kilometre of waterways, which is a really high um, percentage. So what we then found out was, instead of diversifying the sport, we were now working on why do our communities stay away from the water? What is their understanding? It very quickly became apparent that it was more around water safety, um, aquaphobia and just having little to no water safety awareness or knowledge, hence why we're considered at high risk. And and that was what was stopping them from actually engaging in aquatic activity as, as a whole. So although the figures are showing there needs to be a change, the question is, how do we affect that change? So we're kind of broken down to, you know, who are our key stakeholders? We have the sector, we have the community. You know, where are they? Where is the sector? The sector has spent years and millions of pounds getting across water safety messages to communities who are disenfranchised, who are not actually getting the water safety education that they need, and who are also not valuing swimming as a vital life skill Or swimming from a a water safety perspective. And we also had to quickly understand that we we had beneficiaries. Where were our beneficiaries?
0: It's great to learn about uh, all your work, what valued aquatic activities and water safety bring to the community overall. If there was one thing (laughs) we as a drowning prevention community or a specific stakeholder from your perspective can do to facilitate inclusion, what would that be?
3: If there was one thing from a key message perspective to facilitate inclusion, I would say let's consider inclusion not from an equal access perspective, so everyone has got access to this information that is stored in such and such a place, but think about equitable access and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. So when we began working with the BSE and we're looking at research as to really what is behind those very high figures and statistics of under-representation and lack of participation, what we found out is that from a cultural perspective and otherwise, here in the UK, there are other ethnicities that start, think of a number line, they start their aquatic journey at one. If you're born out here, if you're a British, for instance, Caucasian audiences, um, swimming is a norm. Swimming is a cultural norm. So when the children or or people generally, they start at one on the number line. However, the ethnically diverse communities that we work with, especially of African Caribbean and Asian heritage, are starting at minus 3 on the number line. So when we talk about inclusion, are we talk about inclusion from the 1 point or are we talk about inclusion from the minus 3 point? The minus 3 point. So the 1 point is learn to swim. So you can do X, Y, Z. It's a vital life skill. It's a great sport. That's the one point. And yet most of the communities we work with are at minus three point. They're not even aware that swimming is a vital life skill they're not even aware that water safety education is essential for them. Now take away the activity of swimming and think about just basic water safety education. They're, they're, they're not even aware of what they're not aware of. That's a minus three. Then we come to minus two where you're dealing with cultural issues, limited limiting beliefs, aquaphobia and, and other bits. And then we get to the minus one point where people just don't see the value in or or they don't even have the visibility or access to that vital water safety awareness and drowning prevention um, activities or measures to the zero point as to why they should even know this information. So, when we then are starting to design solutions and starting to design policies, we've got to take into account that we have an audience. We have audiences at the one point and the audiences at the minus three point. And it's important for us to move the minus three through to the one, or at least ensure that we have interventions that are best suited to the minus three and not think that everyone is starting at one. Back to what I said. So, when we're talking about inclusivity, it's inclusivity with Equitable access. So, my message is let's when we think inclusion, let's think equity and not just equality.
0: That was so powerful. Such a pragmatic example of what it really means on the ground. And I've learned so much. And a part of me is just reflecting on, you know, how how even within the global health research, we do often talk about equity from low-middle-income country perspective or a Global South perspective, but we hardly ever look about the gradient of inequity within our communities in a high-income country context. Now, Olive, um, there has been an exponential growth in publications around drowning prevention. And if I have the numbers right on top of my head, it was around 103 fold in the last one and a half, two decades. However, most of the research came from U.S. and Australia, and as Daniel was just reflecting, who are the high-risk populations? And in the global context, we understand most of them are from low-middle-income country context. So when we see this kind of skewed representation of evidence and research, how do you think it impacts our response? How do you think it impacts our vision and mission of saving lives?
4: Thank you very much. Yeah, to look at the the skewed the availability of evidence and and where it's coming from, and to also think why is it that is we would have to think about what what's the reason. Why do we have huge amounts of evidence or so or publications from high-income countries about a problem that is actually much more a problem of low-income countries? So what happens is when when that's the way the evidence is generated and and is availed, then it means that at least at a global level, the resources are going to tend to go where the evidence is coming from. They're going to try and address what is clear. Uh, for instance, if we say, what are the priorities? Those that would make the decisions are going to say, where do we begin? Look at the evidence. And the evidence is going to point to probably problems of high-income countries. And so that's where the resources are going to go. Or if there's going to be any form of consultation, they're setting up think tanks, they're setting up committees, they're going to draw from the same population's uh, the same institutions that have generated the evidence, and so it sort of perpetuates that disparity that those that have are going to be given more, and those that didn't have enough at the beginning are actually going to to become even less visible. and And I think this is where we begin. We 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 need to start. And that's why I found what Danielle was saying really fascinating because it's It indeed we begin with those that are at minus three. And if we just take what is in the public domain, then we're always going to give more to those that already are at plus one.
0: Indeed. It's it's, it's intriguing. Where do you start? Because it's such a huge problem. And where where is the beginning? As the saying goes, if evidence um, is the king, context is the god.
4: Where do we start to turn the tables to make sure that the countries that have the highest burden actually also get the resources they need to generate the evidence so that they can then um get to the table where discussions around interventions are happening, resources for uh, prevention are happening, because until we have that, then we can't really approach the table and say, we need to do interventions, we need to do prevention, because then what are we going to, what exactly are we going to do since we don't have the evidence? And I think the challenge for us in academia is to say, we need to very rapidly build capacity within our institutions, but also to be better advocates
0: you know, in some way, evidence generators as advocates. And we, we talk about capacity building in terms of evidence. How, in some way, the global advocacy is not a, a an equal, equitable playing field. You know, as an academic, uh, within academia, we often debate Um, that should researchers be advocates? Uh, Should they try and influence policy? Um, Or should they just stop at generating new evidence? Would you have any thoughts for how researchers can can contribute to to the change and particularly to the issue of drowning prevention?
2: Why do the researchers do the research? Uh, Is it just for the sake of research? No, I don't think so. The researchers are also interested in policies. They are interested in bringing about a change. So the research is basically the if the research is done with that purpose in mind, I think it is extremely, extremely useful to the program managers or the policymakers who make the program. So uh, the research that uh, the researchers conduct in the field gives us a lot of insight into what is actually happening there, because sitting at the central level or the state level, you really cannot know what is happening at the ground level. So who these researchers, they feed into the system. Uh, those important, uh, valuable messages that we get from the research, it's extremely important to us. And I think evidence-based research, operational research, are researches that I feel are very, very important. And uh, because, you know, if you do the, the, there are primary research, of course, that also helps. But for the program implementation part, I have always felt that operational research and evidence-based research is extremely important. This gives us an insight. And it is very important for us to take it to our policymakers and the senior-level officers and politicians to make them understand that why this is so important in the country. So this, there is no undermining the role of research in every aspect of health, and I feel in every aspect of the life. So
4: I think we need to be better advocates, and say, listen, if this is if you if you use the exact same measuring stick, then we're never going to make the cut. And we don't want to do interventions that have no evidence. We don't want to do interventions for intervention's sake, which means that we actually have to run where others are working. We have to be able to very quickly get the resources that we need to generate the evidence, but also start intervening in those areas where we have enough information to begin to intervene. So we need to do. It's interesting. This year's theme is do one thing. But. I am afraid we are going to have to do many things all at once.
0: How can researchers become better educated? So first, we need as
4: researchers to, to realize that from where we stand, we are called to do many things. We are, not, we are not just called to get a grant, do your research, put it in a paper and hope that it gets picked up and that we we need to see what the odds are against us. Um, I'll give you an example, and um, it's, it's, I think, a rather unfortunate one from, from Uganda. So for this year's, um, World joining Prevention Day, we have an, a local NGO that is in partnership with an American organization. The American organization has uh, the resources, has put up the funding to, to do an event, to, to host an event to commemorate the day and so we have local evidence we have the, the evidence here in Uganda which is very clear came out of a national survey on drowning prevention shows that our problem is lakes rivers the fishing communities and water transportation and after that then we have people uh um, young people drowning uh, while getting water for instance from from wells from ponds It's not recreational, and so those are the things we need to fix. How do we protect fishermen and those that are traveling on small vessels, on lakes, on rivers? How do we protect children that are fetching water? Well, this combination of the American organization that has the funding and the local organization that is in partnership with them have somehow persuaded those in government that this day should be commemorated at an event on an, in an elite international school um, poolside where they're going to demonstrate some water sports, they're going to do water polo. The majority of Ugandans that are drowning have never heard of water polo. What they know is fishing boats. And so you have, so I being the researcher who generated the evidence that should be in use, I'm completely at a loss for what to do with my evidence because clearly it's being ignored. As I do not have the
3: resources to find a day. <laughs> I could jump in. Um, Olive, what what we have what we have found as the BSA is that the community needs to own the change it needs to see. We've got to get that's the stakeholders, um, everyone in the room. So by that I say this. We've had The opportunity to move away from aquatic representation in sports and focus on what the evidence is showing us which is the water safety and drowning prevention so if there's anything we're doing that's where we're working so we've moved away from the ngbs and sports and we're working more with the governments ngbs being national government um, governing bodies we're now working with the life-saving authorities because the, the data is showing us we're at that minus three from a funding perspective, we're having to turn down funding from the water sports that you mentioned and focus on having the right partners. As a community, we tend to 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 want to just take what's available. Until we inspire, embolden and empower the beneficiaries, the communities that need to see the change, that are at high risk, to know that they should say no or that they should ensure that it fits, then we're still going to have the same issues with the data being ignored and people coming in from wherever they're coming in with whatever money they're coming in with to buy themselves some cheap content, dare I say there's got to be pushback. There's got to be pushback. And that's what we've had to do, albeit a fledgling charity. We've, got, we've had to say, no, actually keep the sports money. We need to focus on where the community is at. We need to give them vital water safety education. That's why a lot of the work we're doing now is focusing on that life-saving intervention. And even when we do touch swimming, we're not looking at elite sports. We're looking at swimming as a vital life skill.
4: Right, right.
3: So it's it's tough decisions.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Danielle. So so yeah, so to get back to your question, um, Jadur, is that we need to do even as academics, we need to do better in order to advocate for our evidence to say, look, this is what the evidence says and this is where the policy should go, this is where the programming should go. And that should be directed with national policymakers and then it will go to global policy. But right now, what we have sometimes is that decisions made at the global level, looking at global data, they can, they can come up with, with valid conclusions based on global data. But what, the, what happens when it comes to, to national data, to, to even more local data, community data, that's what we need to advocate for
0: thank you and in in the same spirit it's in, interesting at times i as a researcher i feel i am the foreigner within the community is it really even my issue if it is their issue and and how far do i go in empowering because in some ways, as an academic, as a researcher, you become an expert at XYZ. And then when you come to the community, um, the community priorities are different, which might not align with yours. And that's that's the point of reflexivity where, where as researchers, we have to go, okay, is it my space? Is, is it the lane that I want to enter? And should I be entering it? So, so yeah, really, really fascinating. Um, just on that note, Daniel, may I ask you as well, on th- what has your experience been with researchers?
3: Closely. So from a research perspective, there is the academic research. There's also social research that we do with other agencies. But more importantly, what we've done is we have ensured that the communities we are researching on, don't become over research, but that they become part of the research team, that they, they use their voice, that they feel that, they, that they're using their voice and that the change that they want to see, we ask them to be part of the process through and through. So we carry them along within that research team that makes, makes sense because they are the key stakeholders. They also are the beneficiaries. And we can always come back and sense check when we're co-creating and designing solutions and, pol- and advising on and policy on how best change needs to be changed. Now, from a policy level, we do advise, we, we advise the government and we, we, we work with the National Water Safety Forum and other agencies, because those who sit in the boardrooms, Writing and designing this policy, look at it from what Olive said, from the research that is more at a very global level. But we have pushed to have it at that granular, almost localized. Yes, we understand what the figures show for a Caucasian audience, but what does the figure show for ethnically diverse communities? Okay, what does the figure show for Black and Asians? Well, what does the figure show for Black African, Black Caribbean? Um, What does the figure show for Asians, for South Asia, East Asia? Almost like literally. Let's go under the bonnet, because unless we get down there for those at high risk, we are not going to be able to design solutions that will meet that need, which means we're just going to be peddling research and pushing information here and there. And what we have found as the BSA is that from a policy level right now, until we got into the room, our voices were not being heard. No one was considering going under the bonnet and really looking at who are the high risks communities? And are they actually getting the water safety and and drowning prevention information that we're putting across and spending millions of pounds? So unless we are in the room, when those policies are being designed, change is not going to happen. So we've got to, to a, a certain degree, also arise ourselves and own that change and be where we need to be to ensure that the change happens as it needs to happen from a policy level and from a grassroots level. We follow the data, we follow the insights, but not just at a high level. We're led to where the policy and grassroots meet. We're being led, that thread that goes through is community engagement and research, education and support. And it's, it's a cycle. You know, when we, we get to a certain point and we see a change in, in the figures, we come back and evaluate until we get it right.
4: Just uh listening to, to, to Danielle talking about involving communities and ensuring that they're not just being researched upon and and um interventions then being um shoved onto them, but that they actually are engaging in research and having and and their voice coming through. Um and, and I'm just reflecting on how that can happen at the local level, but it also uh in some ways is a reflection of what happens to us researchers at a global level. So, for instance, if you think about research funding, um, quite often uh, when uh, fairly huge pots of research funds are going out, um, they they tend to go to research institutions that are based in high-income countries, um, and then they turn around and find low-income country partners that are going to to maybe do the legwork that you know the communities and they take them on on their terms and quite often they, that kind of hierarchy goes through not just the the conceptualization of the research sometimes but also um, what is prioritized in analysis in interpretation in reporting and unless the low income country partners research partners make the voice their voices heard as as daniel says they they are at the table and they have a credible voice they have a credible voice they know their communities and and they can speak to what the priorities are you know through what gets researched upon but also how the analysis is done how it is interpreted how it is fed back into the communities with the community involvement in in the interpretation and in designing the interventions so i i think we have a responsibility to communities as researchers to ensure that that research um is truly benefiting communities, and, and, and that it's organic, that it's
3: genuine, it's addressing community uh, needs. This is exactly why I talk about pushing back. Now, what we don't appreciate um, as ethnically diverse communities is the funding that is given to the major research organization or agency that research is an end to end piece there's got to be some sort of
0: parody in some ways academia and being a researcher and uh, is a very altruistic uh, endeavor uh, we we want to we want to generate knowledge and, and we want to feel good about it but at the same time uh, uh, it, it 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 hardly and it took me a good 10 years to realize what impact does the research has and in some ways the the, the the whole academic endeavor the ivory towers that we build are our uh, indicators our milestones our value of our worth of our own research is very different um than uh, serving the communities that we intend to to begin but I think we need some kind of revolution that that helps us uh turn the table and uh, actually rebuild the table in some ways Make sure you subscribe to The Scan so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We can't wait to bring you all the latest news and research in global health.